world, today we're going to discuss race and ethnicity, specifically the Black experience in Britain. I'm so honored and excited to welcome my guest co-host today, Yassine Latumba, the newly elected president of KCL Radio. Hey Yassine, thank you for being here. No problem. Thank you, Shona, for the introduction. It was very kind. Um, yeah, it's good to be on this uh, platform for the first time. Excited to host. Uh, excited to speak to our very esteemed guest today. Uh, we've got Kwame Boateng and uh, Dr. Ricardo Tsumasi. Uh, did, I, I, did I say that right? Probably didn't. Pretty good. Tsumasi. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> Only Kwame would say it better. Well, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Kwame, you work for the Black uh, Curriculum, is that right, yeah? Yes, yes, I do indeed. And Dr. Tumasi, I'm going to respect the doctor uh, accolade right there. You, you're a lecturer at uh, King's College London, that's right, yeah? I am, yes. Mm, uh, we're going to be talking about just the whole kind of um, social movements that's been going on this year it hasn't started this year it's been actually going on for uh quite some time now but this year um certain actions and events have kind of catalyzed it and made it grow um we've got a timeline here which i'll actually start it from october actually just because i feel like it's important to get tatiana jefferson's um story in there as well so on the 12th of october a uh, woman, Tatiana Jefferson, was murdered in her home by police after an after a neighbor called the non-emergency number to let them know that their front door was to let them know that Tatiana's front door was open. Um, an officer, Aaron Dean, shot through the window after arriving at the premises, killing her. Um, two days later, the officer resigned, and on December 20th, he was indicted for murder. This kind of murder kind of like sparks comparisons to Botham Jean, another guy who was in his room when um, a police officer uh, entered thinking it was her flat and unfortunately murdered him. Um, we move on to January um, where the first confirmed case of COVID-19 kind of hit the UK and kind of started a kind of gave us a different backdrop. And I feel like COVID-19 is going to be important as like a background force throughout this whole thing. Um, potentially, you guys can give me your thoughts on that later. Um, the next event we've got is on the February of 23rd, Ahmad Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old man, was murdered in Brunswick, Georgia, while jogging, exercising. Um, we actually didn't know the story for like 74 days on after the fact, um, because I think it was one of the lawyers of um, the people involved actually released a video thinking it would exonerate them. It actually kind of done, done the opposite. It sparked a massive community campaign, worldwide campaign actually to get these people arrested. And it kind of started our whole um, social movement of we're just jogging. Um, that was a hashtag like we're just exercising. Um, there was videos of like uh, black people getting together to just go on jogs together just because to show that kind of solidarity as well. I think the no arrest for 74 days was a big one in that one. Um, on March 13th, Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT working on the front lines of the COVID-19 epidemic, was fatally shot by police while sleeping in her own home, in fact. Um, this was after a no-knock warrant raid. Um, essentially, they believed... Uh, that she was connected to some um, 
that her home was being used for some kind of uh, drug drug um, crimes. There's been there's been a statement saying that the police actually had the suspect that they were looking for anyway, and this was the wrong house anyway, which is kind of um, brought up accusations of not just um, racism but incompetence as well as maybe perhaps this was like a orchestrated attack. Um, who knows? After that, we have pretty much what kind of was the, there's not really a better way to describe it, except for like the straw that broke the camel's back essentially on the May 25th when we saw George Floyd, 46 year old father of five, um, died while being arrested. Um, officers uh, Chauvin uh, and three others were around him, Chauvin on his neck for nine minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds actually. George Floyd would say, I can't breathe multiple times throughout that eight minutes and 46 seconds, leading to his uh, sad passing. On May 26th, the day after, the Minneapolis Police Department placed four officers on administrative leave before firing them later that day. And that was only after um, massive, massive protests in Minneapolis, in America, worldwide actually started like it reignited the I can't breathe movement following um, Mike Brown's untimely passing due to another kind of uh, choke from police. On May 27th, May, May 29th actually, the police officer Derek Chauvin was charged with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. People were calling for the degree to be increased and following that it was upgraded to second degree murder on June the 3rd. Um, the other three officers who were fired along with Chauvin were charged with aiding and abetting the second degree murder. Two of them were given bail um, and they're out right now awaiting trial, just out on the streets. And that has also kind of furthered the protests. Meanwhile, all of this was happening. There's been crazy amounts of protests throughout the whole world, America, Europe, Asia, everywhere. And a lot of it, um, not a lot of it, some of it turned into what people would call rioting as well. And following that, the Minneapolis, they actually disbanded, not dis they worked to um, disband the police department. There was also a case of the Colorado, uh, the state of Colorado removing qualified immunity from all police officers there. In London, on June 6th, uh, there was a, pr a protest for everything that's been happening uh, alongside um, uh, Belly Mujinga, who was a TFL worker who, after allegedly being spat on, died of, corona died, um, of coronavirus. Uh, nothing was done, essentially. TFL said there was no wrongdoing. They couldn't see anything from, like, CCTV or something like that. The protests have continued, and they continue to this day. There's um, one in a f uh, next week, actually, uh, a solidarity one with Belly Mujinga, as well as Black Lives Matter and... Uh, these things that happen in America. The June 6th protest led to a clash between protesters and police after a police officer charged into a lamppost and fell off. Later that day, there was videos of police using kettling tactics to get people in. And there's been claims that they were doing this under Section 50 of the Coronavirus Act, which has sparked accusations of further civil liberty encroachment by the government. June the 7th, the next day, protesters still brought down the statue of slave trader Edward Colston. This was a guy who uh, was a slave trader, slave owner, who, with his great wealth from that, gave a lot to Bristol. 
uh, a lot of people, there's people on both sides of that saying that he's, uh, that's removing history, that Bristol wouldn't be without him. And then there's other people saying that history isn't in statues and that this is just glorifying uh, someone who was essentially just a terrible person. Following that, the, on June the 16th, Public Health England released a report that, quote, confirms the impacts of COVID-19 has replicated existing health inequalities and in some cases increased them in, BA, in BAME communities, which is further given evidence and credence to the idea that BAME people in the UK are treated unfairly by the medical industry, by the medical profession as a whole. Following that, on the two days later, on the 18th, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, after being interviewed on Black Lives Matter, was criticised for uh, suggesting that the taking a knee is just a symbol of subjugation and subordination coming from the Game of Thrones TV show. He got a lot of criticism for that, especially from people claiming that it just shows that the Tory parties are just full of out-of-touch people that don't really have a clue about what is going on. Uh, and this doesn't help when... And a lot of people said that that didn't help when um, Boris Johnson claimed that uh, taking a knee and Black Lives Matter were just empty gestures and that he doesn't do empty gestures. Uh, so that's the timeline from October till now. A lot has happened with within the backdrop of COVID-19, especially. We're joined by Kwame Boateng and Dr. Ricardo Chumasi to talk about this. Just before we get into just the, the questions we've got here, I just kind of want to like, what are your guys' general overview thoughts on what has happened in 2020? Ricardo, would you like to, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. I'm not usually an optimist, but I'm going to be. Thanks so much, Hasin, for that timeline. I think that shows some of the things that have happened recently, but really the hundreds-year-old inequality that Black people have faced throughout society um, has its own timeline that has events every millisecond around the world. I do think something's different now. With George Floyd in particular, I noticed that around the time of George Floyd's death and the calls for justice for George Floyd, the protests, these were different partly because of the makeup of the people who had supported this movement. Throughout my whole life, I've known racism because I don't need to learn about racism in school. I didn't, I schooled in the UK, but I didn't need to learn about the problems of colonialism because I was taught colonialism from a British perspective. And being African, it's really easy to learn and understand how colonialism isn't this positive civilizing force. It isn't good for everyone, just for those who are privileged. The difference that I've noticed and the positive spin I have on this is I think this is a tipping point when you have people from diverse backgrounds, lots of white people calling me up, asking if I'm okay, asking what they can do, recognizing privilege, supporting the movement, allying, and most importantly, realizing that they're not actually racist, but they haven't been doing anything to stop the racism that people have been experiencing, the knee on the neck that George Floyd and many other black people have experienced throughout our lives. And that is a big change. And that's probably why I've been more vocal than ever during this particular movement. Kwame? Yeah, I think, I think that, well, firstly, I think that, as you said before in the Thank you, by the way, for the timeline and, and for having us here. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity. I think 
you know, going back to the point in the time when you were discussing COVID, I think, you know, that's kind of where, you know, something changed in the way that suddenly everybody's at home and everything. And, and some people are isolated. Some people don't have support around them and whatnot. And then you had the, the, the death of George Floyd and, and, and previous deaths as well, which kind of, it, it magnified everything. I don't know how you guys felt, but it almost magnifies everything, you know, because you, you're suddenly, you're stuck at home. Yeah, you don't have support networks. Some people don't have support networks. And then on social media and all these other outlets, everything just blows up, you know? Um, and it's, it's kind of like, I think everything has kind of climbed and climbed and climbed steadily you know, and just been stacked on top of one another. And it's been wonderful to see this, the global solidarity that's taken place with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's been amazing to see everything that's, that's been happening, both like in the streets and online, uh, and, and people like yourselves as well that are wanting to bring this up for a topic for, for debate. And, and as you said, Ricardo, I think that in, you know, in, at least in, in schools, um, in terms of education, we're not taught a lot about colonialism and we're, not, we're taught about the role of British Empire, but it's from a, a very Eurocentric perspective, you know, and I think that partially that's why there were so many debates centered around statues. Should they be removed? Shouldn't they be removed? You know, and, and, and I don't think it's, I think, I don't think that for a lot of people, it is about this overwhelming sense of pride um, for slavery or for colonialism, but I think it's a, a lack of understanding. Um, in knowing really who these people are. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine not too long ago and in the town where I grew up, there's a statue of Clive of India. And I was having a conversation with him about it. And he was, uh, he was saying to me, Kwame, like, why, why would you want to bring it down? That's history. And I said, history, we live every day. You know, a, a statue of somebody is not, it doesn't, you're not, you didn't, you don't, you've walked past this person every day and you don't necessarily know who it is, you know? And after we kind of went together and researched him, he was really like, ah, okay, now I, I see. And, and, and this man is, you know, so I think it's coming from the standpoint, as you said, of understanding who these people are, who these heroes, so-called heroes are within the British context. And then, um, then questioning it. The Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's taking place at the moment has, I feel is slowly leading us towards that process of, of reflection and unpacking like certain power relations within, uh, within society. Thanks both of you guys for your inputs there you guys have both said some some things that i agree with personally and want to go in further um ricardo you, you mentioned that this is something that's been going on for hundreds of years which it has since the first ship sailed into jamestown actually so this is not something that's recent at all uh, the black lives matter thing has actually been a hashtag since what 2015 mm -hmm. um so none of this is new i would say it's kind of renewed in a sense um like you said, uh, Kwame, the background of coronavirus, everyone being at home, it's kind of like been piling on top of each other, leading to something like this happening. It's kind of like a pressure buildup. And people have been, been told to do what's best for society, to stay home and to look after one, each, one another. It's kind of like the society isn't protecting those people in return. I was watching um, one a video by Trevor Noah, he was talking about the societal contract and how that's been broken in a sense. Essentially, his hypothesis was that in a, a society is essentially just a contract between people saying, um, this is how we're going to live our lives. This is how things should happen. Um, when if, some, if someone breaks the law, this is how it should happen. If there's an injustice, this is, this is how it should happen. Yet, in America especially, and this happens all around the world, but especially in America, 
and in the West that the social contract doesn't apply the same way to black people. And so they've seemed to be uh, disillusioned by everything. And so I think that coupled with the with the coronavirus epidemic has led to this kind of like explosion in um, social justice movements, which I think is wonderful to see everyone just come together like that. Kwame, you mentioned uh, people looking for kind of to take down statues and uh, looking for this kind of change. How much do you think like the conversation has just been is going down a path of people looking for this kind of symbolic change, such as like changing, taking down statues, uh, putting out hashtags and this kind of stuff instead of actually making actual change? Mm, that's an awesome question, man. Yeah, I think that... I think that these things, like the symbolic changes, uh, the the removal of statues, hashtags and stuff like this, in many ways, I think it's a lot easier than um, to reflect and make the necessary changes towards that uh, anti-racist society. You know, I think, and I think it's extremely uncomfortable as well. Uh, Bell Hooks, a wonderful writer, she talks about the uncomfortability of of discussing race, you know, and, and it's absolutely true. And so, yeah, I think I think some some of these things that we're we're discussing today in terms of statues and stuff like that, I think that these are the um, outlets, so to speak, of dismay, societal dismay. And because they're visually there, and because they they, they become symbols in which like people can channel their frustration towards, um, if that makes sense. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people are essentially in in a, in a way are essentially like voiceless i mean you can you can talk with your direct family and you can do this work as well but there i think there's there's a feeling that that some people that that, that you're, you're not going to be as heard as much and i think that seeing the the removal of a statue you know as a result of like um, petitioning to have it removed or protesting to have it removed um seeing like thousands of people all hashtagging something is is, is symbolic of seeing that solidarity, you know, uh, with the with the accomplishments as well. If that makes sense. Definitely, there's definitely a sense of people being voiceless in the community. I mean, in my community where I live, especially amongst my peer groups, um, a lot of them uh, don't even vote, for instance. And I and I and I always tell them, no, you should be politically active, vote, talk to your MPs, this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I understand why they. Do resort to like not voting they see it as like well nothing's going to change it's not going to do anything um and i think that's also due to like some kind of just disenfranchisement of the community in a sense um there has been on the other hand there has been um there's definitely been some changes brought about due to like petitions and protests actions such as these we've seen it in america where uh like i said before colorado has taken out qualified immunity there's the uh, officers involved in the George Floyd protest were charged. There's been a reopening of the Breonna Taylor case, people looking into uh, a myriad of social issues. Potentially it could be a thing that's just step by step, but how do you think people can gain back their voice that could go about happening on a sense that, on a wider community sense? You know, I'm a strong, strong, strong believer in education and uh, community education and all these different things and i think really this is where it stands you know um is that you we all have a political voice but we just sometimes we don't necessarily know how to channel it 
you know and this is something that we also look we, we teach in the black curriculum as well it's uh, we have um, a community and mobilization uh, program where we look at the history of mobilization within britain uh, so we look at the british civil rights movements and and the black panther party and the bristol bus boycotts and stuff and we look at the ways in which these um these communities were able to mobilize you know so i think i mean i don't want to waffle on but i think you know going if we go back to like uh 70s 80s 90s you had like so many afro-caribbean saturday schools you know that you could go to i i, I was brought up i was born in 93 but where I was, there was one as well, and I, I used to attend that. But there's there's so many of them. Um, you had the Black Parents uh, Association. There was kind of like, regardless of, I, yeah, I suppose there was this this network, this web of connections. And it's, I think especially today as well, this is one thing that we see with social media is that it's even more we're even more capable to to create them and sustain them. But I think it needs to be tied in with um, with education as well. You know, you have to you have to know your history to know where you're going, um, and and on top of that, like the most important thing is critical thinking. You know, you have to have that critical thought in order to reflect and and begin to unpack certain things in society. Dang. Oh, sorry. I, I I thought that point about community and these community organizations is so interesting, and I uh, I didn't grow up here, but um, uh, so I didn't know about those movements and things like that. But how now, like. How Ricardo said that this is a moment that is a turning point. Like, how do you turn? How do you do? You have any suggestions for turning these community organizations into like actual policy that is then ingrained in the society? Like, what? How can we turn this movement into actual change? I think is kind of the next point. It's so beautiful that it's already there, and like that it has the support that it does there there's got to be something more and then how as an ally um as i'm sure so many others who are listening how can we help in that that process i think it comes to sustainability you know um you have to sustain something you know it's like a tree you have to water the tree and, and for it to grow you know what i'm saying so yes yeah, sustainability um and the process of reflection and action you know, you have to look at your pathways. First of all, you have to identify what it is that you want to change. In this sense, with the Black Curriculum, we're trying to uh, get a curriculum reform in place. So we've identified what it is that we would like to change, and we're just channeling the processes. Okay, this doesn't work. Let's go back to the process of reflection. How can we change it and go forward? And in terms of as as an ally, I think I think it's also as about um, what communities can you uh, enter. You know what communities can can an ally enter? Um, what what conversations can be sparked up? What organisations can you uh, walk into and get get support from? What organisations can you create, whether they are institutional, like formal or, or non formal? You know, I think it's about having these small pockets of of of, um, of power almost within communities, and then once they can link together, um, that's when the process becomes more. You, you you begin to see the change or the walk towards more change in that sense yeah i really agree with education of course i wouldn't be in this field if i didn't have a massive amount of passion for the difference education can make how it can empower communities how critical thinking can make you upend ideas and historic ways of doing things i think that as students you guys are huge steps in change. If you look at the 
decolonize my curriculum and why is my curriculum white movements look at where that came from and it's great that it comes from students but as an academic it's kind of sad that we as psychologists and historians can't see the falsehoods that we perpetuate in a lot of the things that we teach in our fields and I think that's another big change. Uh, we have a project at King's College that's actually coming from the top down. It's being led by our Dean of Education, an inclusive education project to get more student insight into what we should be teaching, how we can decolonize our curriculum. And in the first meeting of that project to increase the amount of inclusive education we have, there was a lot of talk about George Floyd and the changes now, because that's really what sparked doing this right now. I mean, the movement has always been there since about 2015. We've had that decolonize our curriculum movement, but the, the imperative to change things now, that momentum, that's, that's new. That's Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd. And I was pretty quiet in those conversations. I have my own reasons for not being too vocal in the conversations surrounding equality. I have my own way of approaching that. And I was asked the question about what we should change for the future. I basically turned the question back. I said, look, I don't want to have sat in this meeting, been part of this committee and look back in five or 10 years and think we're just in the same place that we were before. Are we gonna be sure that we're gonna commit to, gonna commit to do something long-term that will change that? And the Dean of Education kind of looked, so this is a team's call, looked and had a kind of a tear in her eye. And she said, I'm not gonna let that happen. I'm not gonna let, us look back and not have change. And actually I felt quite inspired by that. Um, I think that there's a lot of momentum now and we need to keep that going. That's um, all of our jobs to make sure that we don't have a year like 2020 where we have to see the videos and the stories that we've been seeing for hundreds of years and have to have another movement. Instead, we should have continuous and radical change from now on. Something you actually touch upon, Ricardo, in your June article on how businesses can do more to value black lives. You mentioned um, that a lot of uh, businesses engage in what you call black power washing, in which companies just give meaningless statements about black lives matter without doing any of the real legwork in changing themselves. Do you think um, more companies should take on the approach that the Dean of Education for KSL has in just going for radical changes and if so, why do you think these companies haven't been doing that? What is stopping them from being able to push that radical change? Yes, it's a really great question. I can use the example I kind of did in that article, which is really Copernic 2015, the NFL. If you look at what happened to Copernic supporting Black Lives Matter, when in 2015, Black Lives Matter was a pretty niche movement. Uh, it probably had more support in basketball than it did American football. And he put his career on the line to support that. The NFL basically dropped him. I'm oversimplifying, but he hasn't worked in the NFL since because of his support for the Black Lives Matter movement. But Nike decided to back him and they, carried, they renewed his contract and they supported him. And they did that when that wasn't a popular thing to do, generally NFL fans weren't kneeling with Copernic. Generally they were being more patri patriotic than more supportive of equality. What's happening now is the NFL is saying, actually we're sorry, whoops, Copernic was right um, because of the mass support for Black Lives Matter. 
I still, I'm, a, I'm a, trying to be an optimist. I still see that as a positive. It's still positive change, but that isn't what organizations should do. Organizations should be more like Nike. They should be more like Reebok have been in the past. They should be more like Copernic. They should accept that, hey, doing the right thing takes a risk and it isn't necessarily going to be popular with our fans. Fans are going to burn Nike clothes. People are going to burn Copernic jerseys. But in the end, it was actually a good business decision. Copernic jerseys sell, sold really well. Um, Nike have a diverse fan base and they did well out of it. But businesses should try and do things for an ethical and right and moral reason. And you can only really get that when you change your key business performance indicators away from the financial, more towards ethics, social responsibility, decolonizing, all of these other ways that you can mark progress. Definitely. I think companies being more radical and having people's backs like Nike um, is definitely can be a catalyst for change, um, especially uh, Kaepernick. Right after that campaign, he had a, um, a run where I think it was like a 10 million, it was something like a 10 million campaign run where he would where he was fundraising and matching whatever people donated. So he would ask celebrities like people like Jay-Z and this and that for like a lot of funding. He would match it. And I think he raised uh, above 10 million for that, for um, for the Black Lives Matter movement. There's been talks of people setting up kind of like black schools, kind of like, I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys know, but LeBron James has um, a school in America for underprivileged kids. Stormzy has a a scholarship for black kids for Cambridge and Oxford. This kind of stuff ties into what you were saying, uh, both of you, you were saying before about education being um, the main key, especially how you said earlier, Ricardo, about uh, education, I think about education being a way for people to connect to each other. There's a lot of opportunities that come from just because you met someone that was an alumnus at the same school as you. I was reading this uh, article by the tourism minister in Ghana, Barbara, I'm going to butcher this last name, so I probably won't say it. She echoed the government, uh, the Ghanaian government's message to African-Americans to, uh, and I quote, come home. We have our arms wide open, ready to welcome you home. Um, this is after the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of people have said that the West is essentially like a lost cause and we should just go back to Africa. I know you said, Ricardo, you're a um, optimist and this is a question to both of you but what do you think of that do you think that th th there is kind of value in that statement that the west is a lost cause should black people from across the world go back to the continent the um i was watching something the other day and it was it was a really interesting point that this person made because they the, the that same question was put to them and um and they were like uh, they said the question isn't um should we return home but it's that what do you have to offer to Africa and do you need to be in Africa to do that? Um, because let's not forget, Africa is a, um, a densely populated continent. Um, it has one of the youngest, um, youngest populations on the planet, I think, if, yeah, one of the youngest populations on the planet. And in a lot of places, there is a lot of hardship when it comes to getting work. I know in Ghana, it's very difficult to get jobs. Um, sometimes you will have people that are coming from the UK or from the States, they will get a job and they'll be paid three times the salary as a, a local person will. So we have to think about how it is, if, if, we're, if we're going, if I say if I'm going to move to Ghana, 
what are the reasons for it? How might I how might I be potentially actually damaging something or damaging a system there rather than helping it? If if that makes sense, because I think it's China. China, in terms of remittances, they they double uh, the people that the Chinese diaspora essentially double um, the uh, economic income for China as a whole. Um, it's a very powerful thing. So I think, you know, we are all an African diaspora and it's not so much as should we also return to, but also how can we help build it from where we are and, you know, and then think about moving. But who, who might you be displacing in the, in the process of moving back as well? That's not to say I'm for or against, but I just thought it was a very interesting, um, like, stance on, on, on it. Yeah, I've, I could probably talk about this in a whole lecture and I could start from Marcus Garvey and the Black Star Line and move all the way forward. But a simple version of my view on this is the world is our home. The UK for black British people is our home. And there are things that we can do to help black people all around the world, irrespective of the location we're in. Taking America as an example, as that's where the Black Star Line and Marcus Garvey's ideas that kind of support what you're describing. Sadly, the KKK's ideas support that as well. Where those ideas came from is because things have been, probably still are so bad that people feel like they have no other choice, but therein lies the problem. We shouldn't be running away from an experience somewhere. We should be trying to make it better in as many locations as possible. There are things that we can do in the UK if we're all part of a really elitist academic institution, that there are things that we can break down, do to break down the access to that elitist institution, to increase the number of black undergraduate masters, then PhD students, then ideally lecturers, professors, and hopefully one day black VCs leading UK universities. But there are things we can do from both within and outside and we're, we're within, so let's focus on the things that we can do within. Yeah. I think um, I agree with a lot of the points you've both raised. Uh, I was on the DLR a few weeks ago. I live in Lewisham and I go to Whitechapel a lot to work. And I met one uh, a Jamaican uh, brother on the DLR who claimed to come here during uh, the Windrush era and actually helped build up Canary Wharf to what it is like construction. Um, there is a lot of things in Britain, especially London, that are only possible because of the labor from uh, West Indians and Africans that have come here to work. So I agree with you there that this is our home and that we've built a lot here. I also agree with you, Kwame, that uh, remittances are a powerful tool. I know in a lot of uh, developing economies that that is like the main, one of the main drives, drivers of GDP. And I think looking for ways to do that is interesting as well. There's a company I used to intern for called The Charles, whose mission statement is to raise up brands in Africa to be on the global stage. Essentially, he asked me a question, like, what kind of global African brands do I know? And I didn't have any apart from like Afro Nation, which is just a, like a festival held in uh, Portugal and Ghana. Other brands I know, like Apple, uh, Huawei, Kodak, those are all like European in Asia and American, but there's not really like a African global brand that can elevate us, which kind of leads me to um, another question I want to ask on, which is like to do with the economies of how we can, like the business, how we can cause change on a business perspective, on an economic side. A lot of people say we need to support black businesses. We need to empower the black economics. And 
I would agree with that. I see this a lot in, in places like Tower Hamlet and in North London where you have uh, essentially like communities of people stuck together, like in uh, Tower Hamlet is mainly uh, people from Bangladesh and Pakistan who you'll go to Whitechapel and this is something I find very impressive that you see a whole high street of uh, shops where people only go into that shops, they'll trade within their economies, they'll make it grow up, they'll give their kids like a position here and a position there. Some people claim it's nepotism, but I think this is the only real ways of value creation. I just wanted to get your guys' opinions on to what extent can that be a driver for good? Yeah, man, I know what you're saying. And it, it comes back to Garveyism as well, you know, and and and, and the idea of supporting, creating a, a, a Black-owned economy or a, a Black economy, so to speak. And um, I think there's there's a lot of power in it. I think there's a lot of power in it. I think there's a lot of power in the circulation of money. And I really love the point about what you said previously about, um, you know, the building of Canary Wharf and the fact that this is our home. And that's absolutely right, you know, is the fact that why why should we leave or, you know? But um, in terms of um, Black-owned businesses, and I know Anthony Joshua recently said it as well, um, and I know there was a huge kickback for that. There was a huge kickback for that. There was like petitions going around online. But I think absolutely we need to find a way to kind of build ourselves up um also at the same time it's about opportunity you know um who's who's getting signed off on particular things i think in many ways we we can build our own businesses and stuff but unless we can also integrate into like the world economy then there's no point in doing it you know um because that's where the cash flow is you know there's only a certain amount of cash flow within the black community so to speak if you wanted to say that you know but then you, the cash flow opens up and you create more once you integrate into the into the world economy. I, I guess it's like a small um, protectionist. It is, it is, I think it's a small kind of protectionism, you know, that other states have gone through, like China and, and um, the Asian Tiger and stuff. They all went through this process, you know, um, before they then opened up onto the world market. So, yeah. yeah so, so I have an interesting view in this. I massively support the idea of, us backing black businesses. My sister runs a black hair care brand, which is super important because we grew up being encouraged to straighten our hair and there's a huge gendered issue with black hair as well and the beauty of black hair. And her company Afrocentrics is doing some great work to empower black women to love their curly hair. But I also think there's a bit of a problem here. The reason why we have to support black businesses and we have to try and lift up um, black communities is because these communities are left aside by the rest of society and exploited. Ideally, we should get rid of that exploitation, that fact that when a multinational is recruiting, they're not fully representing different races at the top levels of their organization. The diversity and inclusion efforts at best get some representation across the country, but rarely at board level. Those are the problems that we should focus on, I think, more than it would be great to have really powerful multinational black companies. Sadly, not enough of these exist. But what would be even better is instead of having companies that um, back different communities competing against each other, having all companies representing human diversity equally. Um, I, I don't want a black version of Unilever. I want Unilever to be as representative as the world that it sells products to. I think that's bang on. That's, that's absolutely bang on. 
and I suppose in a way, as you were saying with your sister's hairline, you know, th these things, there is a very much by supporting black business, businesses, what you're allowing for is things that become the norm to change. So, you know, as a result of that, you can walk into a hair aisle and see prod uh, hair products for yourself, you know, and all these things. And that's where I suppose the innovation comes in. And then at the same time, yeah, absolutely. There's accountability for uh, big corporations and institutions as well to, uh, so that we don't have to rival them and, and take it on, you know? I think that, yeah, there, there, there needs to be a diversification and, a, and an opening up of things as well as that innovation so that we can see ourselves reflected in the businesses around us as well and see businesses that we own that, that cater directly to us. Yeah, um, you guys have both said some good points on that, especially about um, the diversification of the already multinational global brands we already have. Um, obviously, economics is kind of just says that the more consolidated things are, the better the economies of scale is going to be. Having lots of different companies competing for the same thing could lead to some inefficiencies in that kind of regard. There's also a, uh, the business case that just having divert, like a, a diverse um, leadership team will just lead to better business results because you're not overlooking things. Yeah. How do you um, guys feel about the BAME acronym? Do you think that that kind of works to mask the, expo the exploitation that only specifically affects black communities? Or do you think it can be like a force for uh, betterment of all uh, ethnic, eth ethnic minorities affected by uh, Western colonialism historically? What do you guys think about that? I'm going to give my point really briefly. I think we shouldn't spend too long focusing on things like what do we call it? What is it named? Because it's going to change over time. Honestly, to me, BAME or BME just means non-white. It means underprivileged. Doesn't matter what word you use to describe this thing. We're talking generally about the people who aren't in the privileged group. So I don't think people should get stressed by or spend too long focusing on these things. Over time, the words that we use to describe these things are going to change. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the words do, they slowly change, you know, even uh, the terms people of colour, black and people of colour and all these things, it's, it, it changes historically through time. I do think the one thing with, um, if we're talking statistically, I think the one thing with uh, black and ethnic minor, uh, minority ethnics, I think it can mask certain statistics in, uh, in terms of like structural violence that's at play. Um, I think maybe it, it means that you have to then research it a little further and push in. So for example, you were talking about the COVID uh, pandemic and um, by the, the, the mortality rates by, um, by ethnicity. And I know that uh, the black males and females were four times more likely to die. Um, Bangladeshi were, I think it was about, uh, Bangladeshi male and females were, I think two times more likely to die. Um, now they're all encapsulated into the, the BAME statistics, right? But when you, go, when you go deeper, it splits off and you can see that information. But what's interesting as well is that it says um, in terms of um, income equality that 40% of the population, well, 40% are BAME and 40% of the working poor uh, are from a BAME background, right? However, it's the Bangladeshi community that make up a large proportion of that, which I found very, very interesting. Even when I was, when I was looking into it, I was expecting it to be the black uh, black community so to speak right especially in terms of the correlation with COVID deaths but it wasn't so I think it can I think it can um, stuff like this 
and I suppose statistics does this in general, but obscure um, kind of important things that we need to know if we want to rectify certain issues. Um, so from an academic standpoint, in terms of um, researching and putting in policies and stuff like that, I think the terminology or the way in which we use the terminology, how far we're willing to engage and, and seek the truth from these acronyms um, can be kind of not changed, but uh, not, not, not changed. But I think maybe we have to have a, a willingness to try and find truth a little bit more and not blanket these, all, these things all together in that sense. Yeah, I think there's some value in what you've both said. Uh, you Ricardo, about the name not mattering as it will always change. Um, it used to be coloured peoples, it used to be Negroes, and then it used to be coloured, you know, it's always changed. Especially what you said, Kwame, about statistics being the kind of like the muddiness of the statistics after like grouping everything together. There's a really great saying that says you can give someone uh, one statistics and they can come up with two conclusions based off that. And it all depends on like what you choose to see and what you choose to not see. So I think that's a very uh, nuanced uh, topic there. About the name always changing and this kind of stuff happen. I've been noticing this a lot, um, especially people on social media uh, complaining about all lives matter, black lives matter, black trans lives matter, all black lives matter. The name of that changing so much as well that it's kind of become a point for discussion and argumentation instead of the actual deeper meaning behind what those means. Um, regarding all Black Lives Matter and specifically within the Black community, how do you think we can work to become more intersectional? I know that I'm not sure what it's like with Black British or Caribbean um, Blacks, but I know that in Africa, especially where I'm from, I've got a Congolese background and Congolese people are very, very conservative. I know if I was to talk to my grandma or my grandpa about like, say, the LGBT, it would, they would not want to hear it and that kind of stuff. How do you think we can reach up like people that hold this kind of like more conservative mindsets to try and make them see the value in all black lives? Or do you think a lot, a lot of people have been uh, using this stuff as like a development tactic as well to try and get infighting within the black community? Do you think that's a development tactic or do you think there's value in having these discussions within our community? I think we need to group together. This is about equality and intersectionality should be the first thing that we think of when it comes to equality. Black Lives Matter as a name or whatever we call our equality movement should be about equal treatment for everyone. The same philosophical logic that says, hey, when you meet or pull over, if you happen to, or search a white person, treat them in the same way that you would search or pull over a black person. That same logic can be applied to gender, can be applied to sexuality, age, race. We need to combine all these different aspects of equality because it's the same logic. If we, as the black community, don't support black trans lives, black LGBTQI, However, there's another acronym problem in the gay community. Um, if we don't support them, then the logic of our argument falls down because anyone who says that a trans person doesn't have the same value as a cis person is just using the same logic that's saying a white person doesn't have the same value as a black person. Yeah, I, I massively, massively agree. Uh, I think that we need to, yeah, the need for intersectionality is a must. And uh, wherever possible, we need to be kind of having these conversations um, 
to to move towards like more of an equal understand an understanding of equality you know uh, within the black community um and i know that there's been some discussions around yeah the um uh, like there's been separate movements for the black lives matter protest uh, trans black lives matter uh, movements and stuff like this and I, you know i have to say i think it's i think also it's it's kind of a, a reaction of something you know i know that black lives matter um, they now include trans lives within their kind of mission statement and stuff. But we also have to ask the question, you know, if, if, if uh, black trans individuals want to go out and protest on, the, on their own, absolutely. You know, pride started off as a, as a trans issue and, and then it, it, it turned into, a, an, into a, a different issue. Do you know what I'm saying? And here you have black pride and, and white pride, you know, and I think it's about finding we talk a lot about space. I think it's about finding the comfortability in, in the space, you know, for the time being, if, if these things aren't like, they can't go together. I think then it's our uh, duty to have these conversations with people again, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I think if I was speaking with my dad or my family, like it's going to be extremely hard. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, to, to have these conversations. And I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, but I suppose, as I said, it's about, speaking with individuals and where you can you know you can't change everyone's mind on these things you know uh, sometimes what's the saying you, you can't bend an old tree you know what i'm saying and sometimes that's that is the case you know but wherever possible it's about having these conversations uh, th there's a little technique that i tend to use i tend to try and talk to people about inequalities relating to them so mm -hmm. if i'm talking to someone female about inequality I'll talk about the Me Too movement. I'll talk about gender pay gaps, the gendered inequalities. If I'm talking to someone queer, I'll talk about the inequalities from the LGBTQI community. If I'm talking to someone older, I'll talk about age inequalities. And, but I'll always make those links with whatever movement I really want to talk about. We really need to understand that all of these inequalities are interlinked. And there's another level of complexity that there'll be more movements that deserve equality in future. I think personally, two aspects of human difference that we don't really include in equality, but probably should, are connected to appearance and connected to weight. I think in future, I can't imagine in, in 20, 20 or 50 years, we don't have these included in our Equality Acts that you won't be able to discriminate against someone because they're over or underweight. But sadly, we can. We should be thinking forward to, okay, what's the next aspect of inequality? Because these things are so combined. Um, if you think about the black female experience, the black Muslim experience, um, intersectionality is so important in how, especially socioeconomically as well, in how we um, experience inequalities. Mm -hmm. And I would just say very quickly as well, I think it's also up to... Um, society and, and, and media and major cultural outlets as well. You know, there's only so much that we can do. And we're now, like, thankfully, we're coming into a time where we're seeing different, um, different things at play and these conversations are opening up. But I think it takes, it, it, it does take time. You know, I think it does take time. But we, the cultural outlets around us, I think they also need to kind of get on board in, in changing. Because where do we get most of our information from now? Where do we learn about the world around us? You know, it's through the television or it's through uh, the, the computer and stuff like that. Um, and you can try and be as vocal about anything as possible. But if there's somebody constantly whispering in somebody's ear telling you that you're lying, you know what I'm saying? And 
it's going to be really hard to sway that person. So I think the responsibility and accountability also lies uh, in media outlets, in again, like schools and, and this kind of thing that the, the, this, the social institutions that socialize are socialize the next generations and the generations before you know so again it's been very valuable things um said there i've taken some notes on some things that you said especially about um the aspects of inequality different inequalities that may crop up in the future that we may that we may have an idea of but they're not big topics such as weight and appearance and this kind of thing i know that this is already a big problem especially in the health industry where doctors um, will oftentimes dismiss a lot of overweight people's concern as just saying, like, lower your weight, which may or may not be valuable advice, but it doesn't really address the concerns that that patient had had. And I know this this disproportionately affects black women, especially as um, there's a very historic case of them being kind of like not taken seriously by healthcare professionals, which is disappointing and very uh, unacceptable there. Uh, I agree entirely that intersectionality is important, um, especially in a multitude of communities. Um, uh, like me, myself, I'm a black Muslim, and I know that in, in uh, Islam, there's this idea of uh, one ummah, which is like one community for everyone to be in. Like, there's one community, is not, it's not this separated stuff. This is a bit different in the real world, but I know that um, there's a lot of cases where there's kind of like even racism within the Muslim community. For example, I know if he was to go to like a Saudi guy and ask for his daughter's hand, uh, they wouldn't want that kind of stuff. I know that's a bit of a generalization, but it does happen in the world. And so um, intersectionality is very important in that kind of regard. And what you said, Kwame, about social media being where we, and social media and TV and just this kind of connected world where we get our learning from. It's been something I say to my friends a lot that they say that um, this stuff has been happening for hundreds of years, been happening for a long time. And a lot of the time I agree with them. And I also mentioned that the only thing that's different about our era is the instant communication that the internet kind of affords people. Um, mm -hmm. People before the internet, of course, there's, there was like a global, uh, there's always been, the, the world has always been connected since the time of the um, Silk Road. You know, there's always been people who know about each other's culture, but it's not to this extent where a per, like a kid born in Kazakhstan, can learn about, can can play video games with a person in Paris, France, and exchange information like that. People grow up not just in their own community, but on a digital community, which is literally infinite in terms of space. It's worldwide. So I think that will definitely have an impact in how people grow up, not just within their own communities, but also learning from other peoples. Uh, that could be a force for good, um, hopefully in reducing ignorance, which is a major driving force of hate, of misunderstanding, just people not understanding. I know um, my friend went to China uh, last year for a, um, uh, his university had a program was, uh, to go there, visit Huawei, visit a few places and just learn from them. And he made a vlog and the amount of people that would just like stare at him in that vlog because he was like what, one of two only black people in the group and there'd be kids in the shopping center just like staring at him through the things people on the train just like like looking over their seats to just stare at him and he would record it and then they wouldn't mind just staring and it is a bit it is ignorance but not in the accusational type of ignorance it's just in the literal definition of they don't know what they don't know this is the first person this is the first black person they've seen ever they have no idea mind is blown and i think um as people grow up with social media and in those connected things, maybe that can 
uh, be changed. Thank you. I was going to say the other thing about right now is that people have congregated in cities more so than ever before. And so people are interacting with people who they never saw before. And that is also playing a component in diversity and inclusion and just acceptance of other, like we were discussing earlier. So I thought that was really important. And then obviously the global community space of social media and things like that. So speaking on that, is there a way that we can harness this moment and social media and everything like that to create these changes that you guys have been discussing? I think uh, to, to, to some aspects, yeah. I think to, social media is very, very powerful. Like, like I, I personally believe it's like it's it's an incredibly like powerful tool. Um, like kids now grow up knowing how to like use YouTube or Twitter or whatever, you know, Instagram and stuff like this. Like it's like second nature. So yeah, as it, where we get our information from, I think that there is um, the opportunity to kind of use social media as a tool to kind of change. Um, change the world in in that sense or change certain things in in society certain inequalities in society but i also think that again coming back to the, the idea of like mega bucks and like uh, institutions like big time institutions and stuff like remember when black panther came out and it was like a huge thing that like it was an all-black cast you know and before that there was maybe blade i got I used to watch blade when i was younger but but like in terms of representation in movies do you know what I'm saying? There was hardly any. I don't know if anybody here has watched um, Atlanta, the uh, TV show by Childish Gambino. Fantastic series. It's a brilliant series. It's a really brilliant series. But the, you know, the the advert in it where the guy's walking, uh, driving around in the Dodge Charger and you see it going around and you don't know who's in it. And everyone's like, look, it's a Dodge Charger. And then he winds down the window and it's a black man, you know? Uh, and then he like just winks and then just drives off and it's this really cool ad. And my friend was watching it. And he comes and he was like, yo, after I'd finished watching it, I was like, how many adverts have I seen with a black person in it? And he was like, I, I genuinely couldn't think of many. And then we have this thing where like, if a young black male or female is driving around in a nice car, they get pulled over by the police because they're suspected of selling drugs. And it's like, well, how many car adverts are we in? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In, in, in this sense. So like, also social media definitely has a, has, plays a huge tool. But also I think it's about like advertisement, films, these kind of things. And unfortunately, we don't have the power to necessarily to change that apart from like lobbying them to change it. But the responsibility and to act on that, on what we are demanding uh, lies within the people themselves in those institutions. And I, I guess like social mobility comes into that as well. The more diverse these businesses, these institutions are, the more probability that they're going to diversify their the images and, and the messages behind the images. I'll add to that. I think we do have power based on what we consume. Look at the box office takings of Black Panther. Look at these new series, um, like the one that you mentioned. I'll, I'll check this out. And I think as consumers, we have a lot of power. You're right, we have the lobbying, lobbying power. And also we have power in terms of what we generate, what we encourage, what we consume, what we follow on social media as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially what you said about um, young black people being stopped in uh, uh, supercars. Uh, literally uh, last week, this was in the news as well, wasn't it? Bianca Williams and her partner stopped by London Met for driving in a very nice car in a very nice area handcuffed kid taken very traumatic incident for them 
But I think, um, like you said, it's just uh, more power, more representation in media. Uh, well, uh, I mean, things aren't where they should be, but they're better than where they were. Uh, we have fantastic directors like Jordan Peele. He had two brilliant debut films, Up and Get Out, um, which had, especially especially um, Up, which is which is just follows a regular black family. There's there's no there's nothing. I feel like a lot of black media revolves around like like kind of like hood tropes, and just kind of like tropes of like kind of like the wire esque type things where it's just involving crime and that. And yeah, that can be a reality for a lot of people, but. There's also the reality of that kid that just plays with his trucks at home and just the regular corny dad and the quiet mom, you know, and those athlete daughter, that kind of stuff is just important to have. I liked, especially uh, there's even more people coming out of uh, the UK as well. Uh, John Boyega, Joy Van Wade, um, they're doing amazing things. I think representation is definitely a force for good. It can be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee finally got his Oscar. Yeah. 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 No, it has a, it has a, it has a lot of power. And like you said, like kind of the, the ghettoization of like the black body and stuff like that, I think is an incredibly powerful image. I grew up in the West Midlands. I was born in London. I moved to West Midlands when I was like four. And um, so it's like a predominantly white area. Do you know what I'm saying? And, um, and the image the the kind of the image that you get out there you know what i'm saying especially for me like a, 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 a like a, as i'm developing my identity and who i am and i'm seeing all these symbols around which are telling me a very different thing to the possibilities of what i could be you know i think that how we how yeah in terms of the media and stuff what we put out there is really important i've had friends in the past that um i've, I've been there only like the first black person they ever met and before that before meeting me they said they were openly racist because of like what they've seen, you know what I'm saying? They're like, oh, but I've met you and you're so nice and red tete, you know what I mean? And, and I think that, and that's what I mean. You mentioned before about cities are diversifying. I think that the one thing we really need to bear in mind is that there's only a small amount of space that are taken up by cities in the UK and the rest is rural, you know? And, and if we really want to understand um, kind of how racism operates in the UK or, or if we want to get a fuller picture of like uh, the black British experience, we also need to be connecting out to these rural areas because just as it may be uncommon now to have a brick, a brick put through your window um, because you're, because you're black, maybe in London, you know, these things are still taking place um, in smaller towns. You, people are still being chased down by teddy boys and or stuff like this, you know? And, and I think it, to really understand the way that racism operates, we need to kind of be decentralizing this, these discussions about like, um, about anti-racist action and, and reaching out to smaller places that aren't as diversified and, and asking, how is your experience? What do we need to do here to change it? That's something that I'm quite passionate about. It's important as well. Um, I think it's very brave when black people enter spaces which are predominantly white, especially to live in. That's, that's like, it has to be scary, I imagine. I went to a very, very predominantly black and ethnic minorities uh, school in uh, like secondary school. I went to a very white sixth form. Uh, KCL is a very diverse university. But I think from secondary school to college, that was a culture shift, a culture shock. Like, because um, there were white people at my secondary school, but they haven't grown up in the same kind of area. It, it was kind of like they were also on like the bottom of the barrel with us, you know, it was kind of like blacks and chavs, what they would say, or like mm-hmm. um, just other kind of slurs against like working class white people as well as black people. I went to sixth form and it was just very, very, 
like a affluent type white people you know um and i think it was like i think it was good for me to have that experience you know just to see how it is in different places because the sex was the college i went to it was just outside of london in like kent in a very kind of like rural-ish area and it was interesting to see how the kids there kind of spoke and how they talk i think i had to have had like a an argument about who can say the n-word at least like once a fortnight in my form tutor like you're saying but why can't i say it? you say it in songs and blah blah, blah. Yeah. and it's kind of like they don't get it and i'm not sure how much of that is ignorance or how much of that is actual malice like it was hard for me to yeah. differentiate because in my secondary school the people the white people just knew that they just knew they just knew and it was like it was just different over there so it's just different how was it where you grew up like how much of it was like due to ignorance or how much was it do you think was like malice like where do you think how do you think the balance was i think i think it depends on like each person you know what i mean like on a larger scale i think a lot of it is to do with ignorance you know what i'm saying and you said and as you said like there's this class that comes into it as well and all these different things i mean we can't pretend that the working white class haven't had their own struggles against kind of like the British state, you know what I'm saying? And so I think a lot of it is um, is ignorance. Some of it stems from kind of that very thing, like being afraid that they're not going to be recognised. Do you know what I'm saying? But dude, I've had it when people have, been, have said to me, oh, can I, can I use the N word and stuff? I've had it in work, you know, and stuff like this. And I think some of it is malice. Some of it is like, it's, it's, it's like, a, I don't know, like, it, I, I, I feel like in a way, it's about being like, it's a symbol of proximity to somebody. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, but I also feel that it's massively intertwined with power as well. So like, if you're a black person in a predominantly white area, right, or at school or whatever, and somebody can call you the N word, right? I, going back to the original meaning of it, like I, me, my personal feeling is that it, it shows a proximity to that person, but also to some extent power over them um, because everybody knows it's a taboo, but you're stepping the line of that taboo. And so it's all eyes on you. You know what I'm saying? Why, 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 why are you letting him say that to you? You know, but yeah, I think, you know, where I grew up, a lot of the, a lot of these things in, in school and stuff are to do with ignorance. And, and that's exactly why I think that in terms of education, we really need to diversify curriculum. We need to have curriculum. We need to have black British history in schools. Um, that is taught from from a younger age, you know what I'm saying, all the way up to secondary school and sorry, college and and uni, and that's one thing that we're really trying to do at the moment with the black curriculum, because it's it's so so important. And the the national curriculum is, yeah, we just need to diversify it and see representation for everybody in there. Uh, and then these places, you know, where you went in Ken, where I, the, the school that I went to and stuff, I I feel that it will have a a better, the outcome will be different, you know the power, the weight of that word might be more acknowledged. You know what I'm saying? And also in terms of solidarity, like um, solidarity might be able to be reached a bit more because it's not of you against me. Because that's the main thing, isn't it? With like, you know, you see people that are like, uh, uh, maybe not to generalize, but like some white working class individuals will be like, oh, these immigrants are coming here and taking our jobs. Well, the reason why they're saying that is because they might well be living in poverty themselves. You know what I'm saying? And they haven't had any handouts or whatever, you know? And, and that's a, it's a brilliant tactic and it's one that's been around for centuries is divide and rule, you know what I mean? And so the opportunity to kind of broaden the scope of education and come to a, like a sense of like understanding um, can also like create that solidarity as well. 100%. I actually got an email about um, 
the uh, I signed I signed I signed a petition titled "Teach Britain's Colonial Past as Part of UK's Compulsory Curriculum." Um, it's under three two four zero nine two, and uh, the latest update on that was the government uh, released a response, um, but the petitions committee um, considered it and they felt that it didn't address it. Um, they've written back to the government to ask them for a, a revised response, a better response. So that's the last one there. I know that we're approaching um, 6 p.m. now, and I think a few of us have to go now. But um, just before we do, uh, just let us know what you like, what you guys have been working on. Yeah, so with the black curriculum at the moment, we, um, we've been working on trying to get the national curriculum changed. Um, so we've been in contact with um, Gavin Williamson, which is the, uh, I think at the time was the Shadow State Secretary of Education. And um, we essentially were trying to get a meeting with him uh, and we put in some suggestions for a curriculum reform that, as, as we said, kind of reorientates like the curriculum to look at Black British history, but also incorporate it in British history, because it's not just Black British history, you know, this is the history of empire, this is the history of Britain. Um, and as you said, in terms of the Canary Wharf and, and all of the things that have been contributed to the UK as a result of the Windrush generation and migration and stuff, um, even down to linguistically, like how language has changed as a result of this migration, like it's incredible. But so we're trying to get the curriculum changed. Um, we received the response from Nick Gibb saying, um, basically, it was, it was somewhat of a positive response. You know, he was outlining that this is what we have on the curriculum and how he does agree that there is a need for a diverse curriculum. Uh, we also ask that the teachers go out and educate themselves to then teach the classroom because the national curriculum is just kind of guidelines. At the moment, we're trying to get a meeting with Nick Gibb to push it a little bit further, yet yeah, to change the curriculum. So really... That's, that's, that's really all. And I guess if you look on our website and we're on Twitter and Instagram and we're updating everyone and um, the hashtag is um, Teach Black History 365 and that's the name of the campaign as well. Oh, that sounds like an awesome campaign, Kwame. I guess I'm kind of lucky in academia that officially we don't really have a curriculum. I guess we have mm -hmm. guidelines depending on the subjects we're teaching. So we're quite empowered to teach diverse history and in my case diverse psychology sadly we've probably not gone far enough with that and there's a project at king's to make our curriculum much more inclusive so i'm currently working on that and i'm also working on understanding king's response to equality and to see if we're doing enough to adapt to what an idealized university can look like um, that cares about equality um, cool. uh, yeah, I think me and Sean are about to do the same thing and just kind of like close out. But I just want to say th um, thank you, both of you guys, Ricardo, Kwame, uh, Clement, was it uh, Clemence and uh, Shauna? Just, uh, yeah, it's been really great. Love to do this again sometime if that's a thing. But yeah, Of course. Th thank you so much for having us on this show. It's been really nice to talk about these things and it's great that you guys care so much. It's nice to feel all the passion in the call. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been incredible. Really good conversations. Ricardo, like it's, yeah, it would have been really interesting to hear a bit more of your, from your, uh, like in terms of psychology as well. And because um, I think that that's an area, as you were saying, that really needs to be looked into. And there's something like, if, from the little bit that I've seen, there's some quite incredible things coming, coming out and theories being put out there. But thank you so much for today, guys. It was really wonderful. Thanks, Kwame. You, you covered a lot of psychology and the things you were saying. You just might not have thrown the theoretical names out there. So yeah, let's maybe have another conversation and we'll bring a bit more theory to it.
Thank you guys so much. This was incredible. Um, yeah, beyond.